Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Compliant with Alliant. It has been quite some time, and we're glad to have you with us. Uh, we will talk today about some interesting new things we're seeing happening in the market, and Diana Craig's here with me. Hello, everyone. Oh, and I'm Christine Blanco, uh, the director of EB Compliance here at Alliant. And today, we wanted to talk to you guys about something we haven't really named yet. Um, there's... We're going to talk about what we're calling sort of remote care, um, sort of add-on care, these things that we're seeing in the market, concierge care, telemedicine, telemental health, um, really started you know, back in the day as, as EAPs, employee assistance programs, and we're seeing this market evolve in a way that's really meaningful, it's really helpful, it's providing you as employers some key solutions to issues that you're seeing come up in your population specifically and especially as a result of COVID. But as everything in a highly regulated market like we are in, there are compliance considerations. Well, and it really has been a little bit of the wild, wild west out there. Um, and that is kind of signified by the fact that I think we just made up the term remote care uh-huh. compliance. Oh, yeah. And we might change it to something else because it's it's all manner of, there's all kinds of things that we're seeing in the market that can, ta- well, I call them like tack-ons. They tack on to your plan. Well, and, and then I made up another term uh, called mental health supplements, which again, I, I just made it up. Right. And you know, hey, maybe it sticks. We'll see, right? So... We wanted to kind of talk through um, a little bit about sort of what are the challenges, how can you design this in a way that's in keeping with your objectives, but also in in a way that you can be compliant, and what are sort of um, what I call what makes the domino tip, that sort of thing. And so really, um, when we used to talk about EAPs and sort of these other sort of vehicles, we would have a question as to whether it was providing medical care. And that's really one of those, you know, dom- you know, the domino falls and then, you know, there's all things flow from that. And and what we want to say, and, and, and I'm going to, anyway, I'm going to put a pin in something else in my own head. I'm going to come back to it. <laughs> but all of these provide, the assumption is they're providing medical care in a way that, um, that we need to, you know, we can dispense with that analysis. They're providing medical care. That's what makes them valuable to you as a solution. And so, there's a lot of ways these things can can be provided, you know, delivery models, so to speak, including standalone vendors, add-on with a carrier, you know, sometimes even in the old days with an EAP, EAP, you would see them tacked on to an LTD program. What we're really talking about here are these sort of standalone vendor delivery models. Which, um, just to, again, highlight our longevity in this industry. Oh, thank you for that. That's when- always nice. <laughs> when you and I started in this business, in the, uh, did we say early aughts, or is that a... Anytime we can use the word ought, it's a bonus, yes. <laughs> EAPs were the only game yes. going, and there really was a question. I mean, it kind of had actually been resolved by then was, is the EAP just a referral service? Or, That's right. Or are you meeting with actual counselors? Those referral services, they don't exist anymore. That's right. Again, all of this is providing medical care. So we, we can kind of dis, uh, dispense with that inquiry. Exactly. And, and, and it's funny that you say that because I talk about that was like before the ACA when truly the fact that there was an EAP tacked onto your LTD was like the biggest compliance problem that came up that day, right? <laughs> um, and, and by the way, sidebar, the, the way they fix that with respect to COBRA was, you know, they just allow it for 36 months. But, you know, anyway, moving past that, um, I'm, I'm, I'm getting out ahead of ourselves in terms of compliance. So do we want to talk about sort of the paths to offering these? I think um, the way I see it is sort of a fork in the road and how you offer these. Do you offer it to everybody? 
do you offer it only to your eligible plan participants uh, or your eligible population rather? Yeah, I mean, that, that's basically the biggest pivot point mm-hmm. uh, we will see. But when we look at all of these guys, if, if they're providing medical care, we know we need to comply with COBRA. We know we need to comply with ERISA. And so some of that stuff isn't a big deal. Like, like Chris mentioned with our EAPs, they just figured out solutions in the industry. They just let everybody keep trucking along for 18 to 36 months, and then they don't really offer COBRA. And they don't maybe tick all the boxes in terms of like an initial COBRA notice or or a wrap SPD or some of of it, but they do do include a lot of it. They get scooped up in your 5,500, and Mm -hmm. they do get put up in the wrap. But so the medical care, we've already tipped domino one of we know we have to comply with COBRA. We know we have to comply with ERISA. Which is planned docs, SMS. All, all those things that, that have real practical implications. Huge practical mm-hmm. implications. Um, but then we have to look at who are we going to offer this benefit to. And so the reason we can offer EAPs to everybody is they have always had and maintained something called accepted benefit status. And that's a it, accepted benefits is maybe sort of the hidden you know, problematic concept in benefits that if you if you don't know it, it's going to ruin your day sometimes. Oh, yeah. And, and not just in respect to these kind of remote care arrangements, but in health FSAs, in HIPAA accepted benefits, all of those things. There's so many reasons to that it's important. And even an application, certainly application of the ACA was when we really saw this concept um, come to the forefront and why it's important. And it's very important here in terms of how you offer it and in, in maintaining accepted benefit status is really necessary to keep you, you know, sleeping at night as it relates to compliance. Well, and, and the million dollar issue there is that's because an accepted benefit that provides medical care does not need to comply with all of the ACA market reforms. For instance. Uh, preventive preventive care, care, right? Uh, oh, lifetime and annual Limit. limits. All uh, the stuff that makes it hard um, you know, the reason a lot of times when you're, you know, you're not allowed to do the things you were able to do before the ACA, you can't have a plan just sort of hanging out there is because that's the reason. It's the it's the market reform mandates that are required across the board, even in, you know, self-funded plans. And so that's what we're working with here in terms of accepted benefits is you want to keep it in that space because then you don't have to worry about those ACA mandates. Well, and that's really the line on can I offer it to everyone? Right. Yes, if it's an accepted benefit, or is it limited only to my major medical enrollees? And that is, um, it, it, it ha- to, to offer it to non-major medical enrollees, it does not need to be accepted. That's right. And so, I, and I, so I think the question for folks is, what's the reason? Why is this attractive to you? What need is it is it meeting? If it's that, oh my goodness, my entire employee population is, is you know, just... Oh, needs this huge mental health supplement right, which, that's not accepted, right. but doesn't comply with all of those ACA reforms. The penalty there is a hundred dollars per, per day, day per person, and that's a really important thing. So when essentially, and the way I think about it visually is, you know, you think about a plan, and it's like a big circle or blob or whatever it is, right? You know, <laughs> if you tack these things onto your your major medical plan, and it's only to your plan participants, it sort of folds in and it plugs in, and, and there's some things you have to do. But it's pretty smooth. Otherwise, you have this new blob out there that is its own group health plan, and you're offering it to people who aren't otherwise eligible, and you're not meeting the ACA market reform mandate. So head-to-head, like Diana said, that's $100 per day. And what we're finding, and the reason why we want to talk about this today is 
these are great solutions for the time, right? These these folks are coming in and they're meeting the market need and that's hugely important, but you wanna make sure you pick a right vendor who understands the landscape and isn't unwittingly kind of creating this financial risk. Well, should I uh, yes. go briefly through what makes a, a benefit like this, a new remote care compliance option, a new mental health, health supplement? supplement. <laughs> yes, yes, What makes do. it accepted? Yes. So, um, you know, just out of the gate, there are a couple of categories of accepted benefits, but the only one that applies to these types of offering are the criteria that I'm going to run through really quickly with you guys right now. So first and foremost is the fuzzy one. The plan can't provide significant benefits in the nature of medical care. So that's about as fuzzy as things get. Mm -hmm. We actually were really thrilled when draft regs on accepted benefits came out probably in 2014 because the draft reg said, Listen, employers need a guidepost. They need some sort of numeric measure for what is significant and what is not. And they proposed a 10-visit limit. So everyone was just sort of happy to have sort of that benchmark. But then in the final regs, they came out and they said, we don't want to have a a hard and fast numeric limit. We're instead going to make it a facts and circumstances analysis. And then, um, again, wild, wild west happens. What is significant? What isn't? you know, we it, still kind of use that as a smell test, don't we? Like the farther away you get from 10, the smellier it gets, right? Oh, 100%. Yeah. Because they kind of told us what they were thinking in those draft regs, and then they didn't really want to make it, you know, something where if you put a toe over the line, you were right. in trouble. Right. But yeah, uh, I think... Unlimited, the, problematic. Oh, unlimited is hugely problematic. One of my favorite potentially problematic ones was 52 per year. So that, <laughs> I'm going to go with that's probably significant. Meaning... It's not an accepted benefit, and if you're offering it to your entire employee population, there you go. You got the whole group health plan kit and caboodle. So there's a couple more criteria we need to be aware of. To be accepted, the plan cannot be coordinated with benefits under another group health plan. And what that basically means is you can't require exhaustion of another benefit before you get access to that benefit. It can't be basically a gatekeeper plan. Um, And then the eligibility for an accepted benefit cannot be dependent on participation in another group health plan. Yeah, that's important. So it's the flip side of what we're talking about. When it's uh, not accepted, we can offer it only to major uh, medical enrollees. And then this last Yeah, and and then just two more things. You can't have employee premiums, and there can't be cost-sharing sort of of point-of-service copay and that kind of thing. It really has to look like this can refined benefit. You know, it has to look and feel a certain way. Like an EAP? Like an EAP, (laughs) precisely. So... um, so at any rate, that's sort of, those are the basics on accepted benefits, and that's the analysis that we undergo when we're looking at something that new that comes to the market. And um, and again, the speed with which these things are coming to the market really requires you know, a, a close look at how the design is and an understanding um, as, you know, what's your purpose and, and, and is the juice worth the squeeze on it based on, you know, how the design is and what your compliance obligations may be, or even, you know, for me, from a compliance standpoint, from a conservative, you know, position, staking out a claim that if it's not accepted based on those requirements that we just listed, including the visit limit, which is something we see a lot that's kind of squishy, it's not, you know, we wouldn't recommend offering it to your entire population. There's too much risk there on the AC side. 
Yeah, and I think another important point is even if you are going to limit enrollment to your major medical plan enrollees, um, you're not scot free. You're not off scot free. You still have to manage a few things. Like, so you got to figure out how to fold it into your SBC. Mm-hmm. You've got to figure out how am I coordinating my ACA out of pocket limits on essential health benefits. Is my Cobra vendor going to fold this in? Like, what is you know all all of that? Because you still have Cobra, ERISA. All of those, all of those requirements, um, and you, you know, you've met the prevent or the market reform mandates. That's not an issue, but there's still compliance obligations. Yeah, I mean, I see fairly commonly um, vendors across the whole breadth of these offerings not understanding that that Cobra is required, mm-hmm. and then not understanding how access works or a Cobra cost or premium gets calculated. Exactly, and so what that ends up doing is that will flow down back. Um, back to the employer for solutions, and and we're very you know uh, aligned here. We're we're well versed in this, and so we take a proactive look at vendors. But I think the um, the important part is when you find a solution that you think is going to be great and it, it works well, just do your homework on it from a compliance standpoint. You know, make sure that you and your alliance representative are having a conversation about what the downstream looks like on it, because you know historically without fail. It's, this is a great idea, let's plug it in, let's get it done. And then, you know, on the back end, as you start going through your compliance calendar year and cycle, all these questions start coming up. So to the extent that um, you can address those, get a statement of compliance from the vendor, because sometimes, listen, the vendor may design it a certain way, and if everyone's comfortable with the risk, and they're willing to give you a statement of compliance and your contract looks the way it looks and you're comfortable with that, that's okay too. Yeah, and then I would also say, Beware the super low cost new market. Um, Too good to be true. Oh yeah, so you got a new vendor who's just sort of stepping foot into the group health plan uh, market. They um, sometimes they can just be extra extra cheap, and the reason is because they don't actually understand all that's required of them. Yeah, I mean, I think what I've learned a lot over the past few years is that. Um, and, 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 and it's all a result of innovation, which is good, right? And as we're trying to manage costs and meet really, you know, um, unprecedented needs, that you see people come into the space without an understanding, to Diana's point, of how regulated the space is and really kind of relying on you as the employer to understand your own regulatory landscape. And, and of course, we know that you guys are managing so many of those things, right? So, um, so it's important to understand, though, that... Uh, that the vendor may come to the market and may not have a, a clear understanding. And so to just to know to ask the questions and to engage with your advisors about um, what kind of compliance risks this may be and is there a way to design it in a way that's in keeping with your risk tolerance. Because all of this, again, we, we, you know, we like to say that a lot of times the agencies are coming down in helicopters, but you, know, you want to design it in a way that meets your risk tolerance, it's within your culture, and that's meeting your need generally. So um, is that it? Are we good? Well, I think that is it. I think we wanted to mention the one thing about just sort of COVID changing the landscape a little bit. Oh, yeah, telemed. Yeah, yeah. so they um, they did actually have a telemed, I call it the telemed for all exemption, where mm-hmm. they basically said, look, COVID's happened. And while we have this public health emergency declared, mm-hmm. and that's the one, Chris, it's uh, every 90 days CMS. Every 90 days CMS, HHS, which is different from the national emergency, but they're, they're, they're connected. Yeah, so they basically said um, 
there's a limited telehealth exemption where you can offer telehealth to all for plan years beginning before the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency. But the thing that we've seen is uh, groups are a little bit hesitant there because it's going to be a takeaway. And the current public health emergency was uh, last renewed April 15th. Mm -hmm. So it's up for renewal. And it's not going to go on forever. That's right. That's right. So, um, yeah, that's a really good point. You can be doing this right now. So if, if you... If for some reason you're confused about, well, I, I thought I could do this. Yeah, there's a, there's a window right now, mm -hmm. but that window closes. And it was just for telehealth. That's right, exactly. Um, so I think I think that brings us to the end of whatever it is we're calling this remote care supplements, whatever new innovative you know tack on plan design things that are you know helping you out. Just make sure you're. Uh, you are dotting your I's and crossing your T's. And thanks for joining us. 